If you're an investor, you probably have exposure to mainstream equities and maybe some diversification via bonds. But some investors with larger portfolios add additional diversification via assets such as commodities. This is a wide area and can be accessed via a variety of funds which take different approaches, such as BlackRock World Mining Trust, run by today's guest, Evie Hambro, Global Head of Commodities at BlackRock. Every commodity funds invest in various different types of securities related to this asset class. So what exactly does BlackRock World Mining Trust invest in? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us uh, here today. The investment trust at BlackRock has been going now for 25 years. We just passed our 25-year anniversary in, uh, just recently. And um, we, throughout that entire history, have predominantly been invested in the equities, so the shares of uh, mining companies listed around the world. But we also uh, invest, uh, we had the freedom to invest because we're an investment trust in commodity derivatives. We can also invest in physical commodities themselves. We can go into the fixed income or bonds issued by uh, the companies. Uh, we can also have private investments. Uh, and today we have a, a royalty investment inside, inside the trust. So I think the benefit of an investment trust is it gives you the freedom to be able to invest throughout the kind of spectrum of opportunities uh, available to financial investors rather than just being restricted to just fixed income or, or just into commodity futures or commodity equities. Now, just turning to, uh, I suppose, what the trust mainly invests in, the shares in mining companies, why hold these rather than actual commodities such as gold or silver themselves? Mm, it's a really good question. So a commodity equity or commodity share trades a little bit like an option on the commodity price. So the company will produce the commodities and you'll be exposed to the profit margin that they make from mining those commodities and then selling them to, to their customers. As the prices of the commodities go up and down, the profitability will change. Also, as the production goes up and down uh, and the costs change. So effectively, you're exposed to that margin uh, and there are a variety of different inputs that cause that margin to change. What we hope that we can do uh, inside the trust is to manage exposure to those profit margins through time and through cycles, which is probably one of the most important things for investors to think about because this area is very cyclical in, in nature. Uh, and so you get these huge swings of fortune as demand and supply of commodities change and the macro environment change as well. So why should they own the equities? Well, the equities have the ability to be able to grow. You have the ability for that profitability to change. Whereas if you're just exposed to the physical commodity, you'll only get the change in the price of that commodity through time. Okay. So how do you go about selecting um, investments such as these for the trust? Yeah, so we uh, we have an investment process um, that is kind of two-legged in a way. First of all, we have a top-down approach where we're trying to think about the bigger picture in the world, the macro environment, what's happening to demand um, globally, uh, and what's happening to supply. And we kind of bring in a commodity analysis into that area of our, our portfolio construction and investment process. On the other side of the, equa the equation is we look at the companies specifically. So we spend a lot of time analyzing the companies, trying to get a, a, a real grip on uh, the prospects for, for a business. Are they likely to be able to grow production? Is production shrinking? What's the expiration potential where they might be able to extend the life of existing operations? What's the cost profile? What are all of the ESG risks attached to that? Are they likely to lose their license to operate in a country? We have to model also country risk because these assets are static. You can't pick the mine up and move it into different countries around the world. So we've got to know what the fiscal environment is going to be like um, for the company operating in that particular country country. And we bring those two things together. Uh, we formulate a view of where we'd likely to be like to be exposed. And then we populate the portfolio with the stocks that we've chosen from the company analysis.
So what types of commodity companies have the best prospects in the coming years? Yeah, so it's a question that we're always asked that. Uh, and what we try to do is to not forecast the price of a commodity in a specific time period. Uh, and the reason for that is that it's it's incredibly difficult thing to do. Hardly anybody ever gets it right. And so if you said, what's the price going to be on the 31st of December in a year's time? Um, I would have a view, but I'm unlikely to be right. What we try to do, therefore, is look at the medium to long-term trends. Uh, If demand for that commodity is rising or falling, that will play out through time. Supply is easier to forecast because new developments are a a long time in the making. So it takes many, many years to find new sources of supply, a very long time to get permission and permits to, to build the new mines, and then the supply added to the market. So you can have a better a guess at, uh, at working out what the supply dynamic is going to be uh, and you can then get a picture of what the price is likely to do whether it's to rise or fall through time uh, when we think about the the commodity companies what we're trying to do is to a find out where the value is in that underlying business and b what the threats are to the margins through time through cost inflation and price changes and if we bring all of that together then we'll we'll have a kind of a, a view on the prospects for the company now to answer your question directly over the next kind of 12 months, you know, we have seen a, a significant sell-off in the second half of last year, principally in the fourth quarter of 2018. And this has left valuations at very low levels relative to the past. Yet the companies today have incredibly low levels of debt. Um, they are much less risky than they have been in the past because they're being run for the benefit of the shareholders. You know, surplus cash is being returned back to the owners of the business. So you're getting very high dividend yields with low balance sheet risk. And also you're getting a stable kind of growth environment for the demand for the commodities. So we think there's a huge opportunity across the space. If you want to get into more detail, I think it's going to be really stock-specific names that we'd have to get into. But, but I think a general comment would be that there's a lot of value available today and the, se- and the sector is trading statistically a lot lower than it has been in the past. Okay, and are companies involved with any particular type of metals um, sort of like um, looking good or is it just a case, like you said, that sort of good companies across the various types of metals. Yeah, so we tend to think about, rather than necessarily the commodity price, Mm. the profitability and the return on capital that the businesses are enjoying. So if you were to look at a commodity like iron ore, we're in a very good, healthy price environment, even though the price today is nothing like as high as it was in the peak of the market a few years ago. You know, prices of $65 to $75 a tonne for iron ore allow the big, established, diversified mining companies to be incredibly profitable. Very high EBITDA margin. Uh, and so that margin is v- incredibly attractive to us. Is the price of iron ore likely to rise much faster than another commodity? I don't know. But the return that we're going to get from those companies should be excellent through time. Uh, com- other commodities that have much more volatile price environments, you've seen the falls in the price of lithium last year, the falls in the price of nickel and, and copper and others, those could easily rebound in 2019. But the risk attached to the, the margins there is much higher than it would be, say, in the diversified mining companies. So we don't really think about... Um, one particular area by commodity as the kind of big opportunity set. It's more about trying to work out whether we're going to get the best return on our capital uh, in a particular period of time.
Now, you recently said we could be at peak pessimism around trade wars, so are looking to add risk. Have you gone ahead and done this? And um, if you have, what what kind of risk have you added? Yes, so that comment uh, is is very specific in relation to the kind of, I guess, investor sentiment and media coverage around some of the big macro events of the last 12 months. Uh, And so when you think about all of the, the volatility attached to the trade discussions that have been going on, you know, some of those ones appear to have been resolved. So the, the breakup of NAFTA and the deals that uh, the US has done with Canada and with Mexico, the deals that they've done uh, with Japan, and also some of the preliminary work in, in Europe as well. It really kind of leads uh, the, the stage focused on China and trying to get a, a transaction done with regards to the trade talks in, in China. All of the momentum recently with regards to that, starting with the G20 meeting in the, in the fourth quarter of last year, it appears that there's a more positive tone um, to those trade discussions today. I'm sure it's going to be a volatile journey, uh, but it's definitely a more positive tone than the, the kind of peaks of negativity. So my comment in relation to that was really around what is being priced into the market. Uh, and I think when you uh, when you look at the kind of the, the change in focus and the change of direction, we, it, it might easily play out that 2019 we start to see a path forward to resolving some of those trade talks. Sorry, in answering your question about risk, also, mm-hmm. yeah, we have been adding risk to the portfolio because of our conviction that we were getting to very low points with regards to some of the valuations. And those valuations were uh, out of touch with the physical reality in the companies that I mentioned earlier with regards to the low levels of balance sheet gearing and the high profitability and the strong return on capital focus and, and distribution of surplus capital that the companies are now adopting as a strategy. Okay, and how, how have you added the risk? Um, well, we've been adding investments or, or it, a different strategy. Um, yeah, so we've been adding overall exposure to equities. We've mm. increased our gearing also inside the trust. Uh, and so that reflects our conviction on the value available in the market. Okay, now the gearing, that's the investment trust debt. What level is it at at the moment? How much have you increased it? And do you think you'll increase it further? Yeah, so what we've done over the last uh, couple of years, well, we use our our debt inside the investment trust to enhance the returns from the portfolio. And for most of the last few years, we have been using our debt capacity to buy resource company bonds, where those bonds have had very high coupons. Um, You know, in, in some cases, 10, 12, 14, percent uh, and our cost of debt because of low interest rate environment has only been a couple of percent and the gap between the two that that's kind of the, the difference we've been able to harvest that and been able to return that to our shareholders with an increase in the, in the dividend and to also diversify the income mix in the last year or so we've actually reduced the exposure to the bonds whilst maintaining the equity or the gearing and we've focused some of that gearing towards the equities because of the value available to us so in with the improvement of fortunes of the companies the cost of the of the debt their bonds had come down and so the arbitrage opportunity wasn't as big as it once was so we've got a lower exposure to resource company bonds today and a higher exposure to equities and the gearing is, is allocated the addition the, the, the surplus gearing is allocated to the equities today which is a reflection of our conviction Okay, and what what level of gearing does the trust have? So we have we can have up to about fifteen percent gearing, but we don't. It's not really a percentage measure. It's a it's a cap in terms of a dollar mm. amount. The trust had a difficult twenty eighteen underperforming its benchmark. Why was this? 
Yeah, so it, we had had a very good 2018 up until about uh, November. Um, and the sell-off that we've seen in equities in the last couple of months of the year, principally that kind of October, November and early December period, um, caused a, a huge loss of value in some of our key growth names. Uh, they were sold off the most. Uh, we also saw a falls in the value of some of the bonds that we owned, uh, which have all now rallied back. And so we've seen very strong performance of the trust capturing a lot of that underperformance. So it was incredibly disappointing because I think at about uh, September, we were uh, strongly ahead over one and three years, and we were only marginally behind over five. But the amount that we lost in Q4 was incredibly frustrating. And again, there's been no deterioration in the company fundamentals, which is why our conviction on the equities is so high. You mentioned the bonds, and bonds bounced back. What percentage of the trust assets roughly are in bonds? About 10%. Okay. Turning to your cumulative numbers, the trusts also underperformed its benchmark EMIX Global Mining Index over one and five years, particularly over the latter time period. What contributed to this? Yeah, so we don't have an official benchmark. We have a reference index. Mm. Um, so what we try and do is to look at the performance of the portfolio versus that. But obviously, you're fully aware that our portfolio isn't an equity-only portfolio. We have lots of other things that we invest in, whereas that index is just 100% equities. So there are periods of time which we strongly outperform and also behind, uh, are behind relative to the mix of the portfolio. And our goal is to deliver a superior total return through time with a combination of income and capital. And so if you look at that long-term term history of the trust. That's exactly what we've managed to do. Um, with regards to the shorter term numbers, obviously that we have volatility in the equity market, as I just mentioned, where we saw a significant sell-off in the, in the final few months of 2018, which lost several hundred basis points of relative return compared to that reference index. As you mentioned, the area you invest in is volatile and the investment trust is too. And both the index and both the trust have made negative returns in a number of recent calendar years. Will this improve and why should investors consider allocating to you know an area such as this and I suppose funds such as BlackRock World Mining Trust? Yeah, so we had an incredibly strong 2016. We're up over 100% in 16. Uh, we had a very strong 2017. And 2018 was looking fantastic through until September of, uh, of last year. And we've given quite a bit of that back. Um, so, you know, we have seen this very, very strong rally from the cyclical low, which was actually January 2016, after a five-year down part of the cycle from 2011, which was the peak of valuations in this space. So that cyclical trend tends to be the single biggest driver of the absolute numbers that we can generate. Uh, we obviously try and diversify that risk by investing not just in equities, but in other in other um, securities as well, which we've talked about. And by being able to smooth that investor journey through time, we can hopefully generate that superior total return, which is our goal. The trust has an attractive yield of about 4% um, and pays dividends regularly, but still trading at a discount to NAV. This morning it was around 11%. Why is this? I mean, income investments quite often trade at uh, par or even a premium. Yeah, it's a good question. So I've been involved with the trust since its inception. It's been going 25 years now. And there are only two times in that 25 year history where we've traded at a premium. Uh, once was on day one at the IPO where we traded at almost a 40% premium to cash. Uh, and then the other one was a few years ago, I think it was 2014 kind of time frame. 
2012, 14, somewhere around there. Um, so we have consistently traded at a discount. Uh, our discount through time has averaged about 15, 16%. So today's discount is actually less uh, or a lower level than we have done, we have had historically. Um, why does this trust uh, trade at a discount? I think it's because of the volatility of the underlying asset class. Uh, we are not an in- income trust. We try and deliver a superior total return uh, through time. Uh, income is a significant component of that. If you look at the long-term history of the trust, you'll see that about 35 to 40% of the total return has been generated um, from income and the balance from capital. Um, so I think it's that mix, uh, the volatility in the capital element, which is the reason for the, for the discount. But also it's very usual for investment trusts as a whole to trade at discounts. Okay. Over the past few years, the trust has paid out um, quite an attractive level of dividend, part of a new, well, not new anymore, but what was a new policy, was it from 2014? Sorry, um, no, we, yeah. what we did in, in the investment trust is in around 2011, mm. 2000, yeah, about 2011, we started to um, really sweat the portfolio harder mm. to get the maximum yield out of it as possible. And one of the reasons for doing that is that when we saw other investment trusts trading with about a kind of three and a half to four percent dividend yield, their discounts were less than five percent. And the board had taken the view that one of the things they wanted to do was to reduce the discount that we'd been trading at. Uh, and so when we, saw, when we saw that association, that correlation in the market, uh, and we could work out that we were able to pay this higher level of income without damaging the capital return profile uh, of the trust, we went down that path. So it's been about six, seven years now that we've been doing this. It's been very successful. The discount is now lower than it has been historically. Um, we've reduced it, as I said earlier, by about 4 or 5%. And we've been able to generate you know, those additional returns for our investors by sweating the assets of the portfolio harder by focusing a little bit more on that yield element. Can the trust continue to pay um, dividends equal or greater than the current level? Uh, I'm not really allowed to give a forecast about dividends for the future, but obviously our goal is to try and continue to deliver that superior total return, and income is a huge, hugely important part of that. When we look at our, the income mix today, and, and we've seen for the last few years, we are seeing a rising level of income from the underlying investments because the companies that we're invested in have adopted a strategy of returning surplus cash to share shareholders now that they've paid off debt and uh, and so on. Uh, and so we're seeing that rising level of ordinary dividends. The arbitrage opportunity that we have within the fixed income market by buying resource company bonds and using our balance sheet to do so is likely to persist. And we also do a small amount of selling volatility to the market uh, by uh, monetizing that volatility in the options uh, area. And that should also be consistent because, as you mentioned, this sector is very volatile through time. So there should also be decent levels of volatility to be able to monetize. The last component is our exposure to royalties, where we have had growing income from royalties, and we would hope to be able to add to that through time. Turning to um, the risks ahead, there are concerns about a slowdown in China. How likely is this and how detrimental will it be to the trust's holdings? Yeah, so the the, uh, investment trust, as we've talked about, is invested in the securities of mining companies. And and obviously, China's the largest component of commodities demand uh, around the world, depending upon which commodity you look at. Um, Consuming anywhere between kind of 30 to in excess of 50 percent of of global production. Um, And 
so obviously a slowdown in China would be negative for commodities demand uh, and therefore negative for commodity prices and then in, in return the profitability of the mining companies. What we have seen though over many years is that China has consistently been able to grow demand for commodities uh, and even though that we've got this kind of speculation uh, around a slowdown in China, uh, what we're also seeing inside of China is a reform agenda and China is reducing domestic production capacity of many raw materials. They are closing down inefficient, highly polluting um, production facilities and increasing their reliance on global suppliers uh, and imports of these raw materials. So actually the recent policy agenda inside of China despite the slower level of economic growth has been fantastic for commodity prices because the demand for seaborne traded commodities has actually risen significantly and that has allowed producers of iron ore, coke and coal and other commodities to enjoy these high levels of profitability. Companies exposed to steel and iron ore, such as BHP, Billiton and Rio Tinto, were a drag on your relative performance in the latter part of last year. Will you consider reducing your allocation to companies um, involved with steel and iron ore? Yeah, so we don't, as I said, we don't really have a, a, a an official benchmark. We have a reference index. So this isn't something that we are too concerned about at all. What we're trying to do is look at the value-based opportunity for us. Uh, and what we see today is in the producers of steel-making materials, I mentioned things like like iron ore and coke and coal before, the high level of profitability that these companies are enjoying today to us looks much more sustainable than it does to the market. So we've actually been adding exposure to the producers of these raw materials because of the fantastic returns that they're making. Okay. Now, are there any types of commodity company you're avoiding? Yeah, obviously, there are lots of things that we try and avoid in the market. I think one of the first things that we try to do is to make sure that we're invested in companies that have a high degree of kind of uh, ESG focus. They're trying to operate in the best possible way. And we also try and avoid countries um, where there are risks to the assets that we would have exposure to. So if there's a high degree of political risk, there's a risk of change in fiscal regime where there's going to be increased taxation and so on, those would be negatives um, for us, all of the obvious things that you you would think about. In terms of commodity specifics, what we try to do there is to, if we see long-term demand destruction for a commodity, that would be a warning sign for us. And also, if we see excessive supply growth, that would obviously be negative for the commodity price outlook as well, if the demand wasn't going to be strong enough to be able to absorb it. In today's environment, the supply side part of the of the risks is actually vastly reduced, because mining companies today are choosing not to reinvest cash back into their businesses um, to grow production. Um, in the past, that's been quite value destructive for many companies, and so they're res- resisting that temptation and and passing the money back to to us as as the shareholders. On the demand side, actually, what we're seeing right now is actually decent demand for commodities around the world. So we don't see any commodities that are too at risk from kind of material demand destruction. If anything, we're seeing new uses coming through, the increased electrification that we're all enjoying around the world, the shift away from the combustion engine to electric vehicles, for example, will be highly commodity intensive for some commodities like copper, some of the battery materials that we've been exposed to like lithium, cobalt, uh, also graphite as well. So I think it's a quite an exciting environment where we might see inflection points ahead of us, uh, where we see steep levels of demand growth coming through. And because of the lack of investment into the uh, supply of some of these raw materials, prices could respond uh, quite ex- in a, a quite exciting fashion. Okay. Now, you've mentioned a few times that um, among other things, you consider 
ESG issues or for the sake of our listeners, environmental, social and governance factors, but you not an ethical fund. Why, why do you consider these uh, factors if um, you know, you're, not, you're not looking to meet ethical criteria? So I think the mining industry uh, as a whole is often seen um, as, a, as an industry that you wouldn't associate necessarily with ESG. Um, and so one of the things that we try and do in our, our, our kind of investment process and the research um, that we do is we're trying to make sure that the businesses we're going to be invested in uh, manage the risks of operating. And if they're operating in an area of the world um, that is seen as risky, well, some of the best things that they can do is to be able to earn their social license to operate rather than necessarily their legal license to operate. And the best way of protecting their ability to continue to operate is to have that support from local government, from communities that they're operating in, and investing some of the monies back into that uh, into that area um, to be able to sustain their ability to be able to, to continue to produce those raw materials. So we see that as a risk mitigation tool. Uh, we think it's an essential thing that companies uh, adopt as, as stringent as possible the policies around ESG um, because they're allowed them to be able to manage their risks and be able to preserve their right to operate. So it's an important part of what we do is to make sure that those companies are adopting those things. We've been talking about the bonds and um, some of the um, non-equity investments. What's the investment trust total exposure to to non-equity investments? Uh, so we are we have nearly all of the portfolio invested in equities um, today. So we're about ninety percent or so of the portfolio's gross assets uh, invested in, uh, in in equities. Uh, we also have the exposure to the bonds, and we also have exposure to unlisted securities as well. So we, I mentioned the royalty investment that we have in a Brazilian copper and gold mine. Uh, and so if you add all of those things together, the gearing, etc., when we have about one hundred and ten, one hundred and fifteen percent of gross assets over the last kind of twelve months on average. And over 90 odd percent of that would be the equities. Um, and how have the um, non-equity investments been performing? So the, our largest exposure in this area is our royalty investment to a Brazilian co- and copper uh, and gold producer, uh, which we made a few years ago now. And, and that's been a, a really, really strong uh, returner for us. Um, that, that investment was made, uh, a total of $12 million was invested uh, into this royalty. And just to be clear for your, the benefit of your investors, a royalty that we have gives us exposure to the revenue line. So as the company produces... Uh, um, copper and gold, we get a direct share of the money that they get when that, those materials are sold. So we're not exposed to the operating costs. Uh, we're only exposed really to the price of the commodity and the volumes that they produce. Uh, so it is a lower risk investment um, in, in, in terms of the, the way to think about that. Uh, that investment has been growing. They've been growing their production um, and the prices of those two commodities have been rising. So we've had increased royalty payments um, from that group. And one of the most exciting things um, about that investment is we aren't just exposed to the one mine that's in production today. Our royalty extends onto other licenses that that company has, uh, including a, a second project, which is uh, looks like it might go into production in the next kind of two to three years. And if that was to happen, that would significantly increase the royalty payments that we would get. Um, and even more excitingly, the, the business that uh, we had the royalty with was taken over by a large Australian uh, resource company um, who's very well financed and uh, it is our uh, hope um, that they're going to be able to to bring forward the development of that second project. In 2014, 
some of your non-equity investments encountered some substantial problems. What happened here and what steps have you taken to try and ensure this doesn't happen again? Yeah, so we were, I think it was a, a difficult time for us with one of our royalty investments in Africa, uh, where there was a, an outbreak of Ebola um, and uh, that uh, asset ended up uh, not being able to produce. And, and as a result of the, the lack of production, the company uh, went into receivership. Uh, that was a pretty extreme outcome um, and uh, hopefully one that doesn't repeat. The lessons that we've learned from that, I think the main one is around sizing. Um, so we we introduced some changes to our investment policy with regards to unquoted investments uh, on the back of this, where we have reduced the amount of the portfolio that can be invested into any one particular uh, royalty investment. Uh, and also, if we're invested into the company, uh, into their shares or their debt, and we have the royalty exposure to the same group, uh, we also have restrictions in relation to size around that as well. So the main lesson is on sizing. Will you make any new investments in royalties? Yeah, we've been actively looking for new royalty opportunities for the last few years. Um, this is It's a really, really competitive part of the market. So we're see- we are seeing other groups um, trying to buy royalties, and we've missed out on a number of opportunities uh, in the last few years, uh, basically because we haven't been prepared to pay up just to get them. We need to have a value-based reason to be able to put money to work in them. Um, so we are, uh, I guess... Uh, hoping that we're going to be able to conclude some transactions in the next few years uh, and we have active discussions with royalty opportunities all of the time. Okay, thank you Evie. A really interesting insight into BlackRock World Mining Trust and the prospects for listed mining companies. That brings us to the end of today's interview but you can read more mining companies, commodities and funds that invest in them at www.investorschronicle.co.uk Thank you for listening.